Welcome to the Art and Science of Joy podcast. This podcast is all about inspiring people to live more joyfully. So if you're seeking a bit more joy in your own life or seeking to bring some more joy to the lives of others, then this podcast could well be for you. And in the second series of the podcast, we're focusing on joy superpowers, special powers we can cultivate in order to navigate these turbulent times in which we live. I'm Andrew Cannon, and I have the honor to be your host. In each episode, I'll be inviting our guests to share their words of wisdom on a specific joy superpower. And in this episode, I'm excited to be talking with Terry Tucker about dealing with pain. Terry Tucker has been an NCAA Division I college basketball player, a Citadel cadet, a marketing executive, a hospital administrator, an undercover narcotics investigator, a SWAT team hostage negotiator, a high school basketball coach, a business owner, a motivational speaker, an author, and most recently, a cancer warrior. He is the author of Sustainable Excellent, 10 Principles to Living Your Uncommon, Your Uncommon and Extraordinary Life. Welcome to the show, Terry. Thank you, Andrew. I'm looking forward to talking with you. Well, it's, it's lovely to have you here, and I'm looking forward very much to our chat, too. So, you know, as I mentioned, you've led a very colorful and extraordinary life so far, Terry. And to start off, maybe you could give our listeners, you know, a highlight tour in your own words of your own life so far. Yeah, sure. So I am the, the oldest of three boys. You, you can't tell this from my voice, but I'm six foot eight inches tall. And uh, you mentioned I was a Citadel cadet. I played college basketball uh, at the Citadel, despite having three knee surgeries in high school. Mm. And when I graduated from college, you know, I, I moved home to find a job. I'm, I'm really going to date myself now because this was long before the internet was available to help us find a okay. job. And, you know, fortunately, I was able to find that first job in the corporate headquarters of Wendy's International, the mm. hamburger chain. Unfortunately, I ended up living with my parents for the next three and a half years as I helped my mother care for my father and my grandmother, who were both dying of different forms of right. cancer. You mentioned my professional career, so I really won't get into that. And uh, I guess other than that, my wife and I have been married for 28 years. We have one child, a daughter, who's a graduate of the United States Air Force Academy and is an officer in the military. Well, that's wonderful. Thank you for that background, Terry. So what are you working on lately? What, what's occupying you these days? In all honesty, trying to stay alive. I, I, I mean, I, I, <laughs> I, I know that that doesn't sound very uplifting when we're talking about joy. But if, I mean, for me, it's I'm in a situation where I have tumors in my lungs and I mm -hmm. am um, I go every third week to be treated for those tumors. And then I have a couple of weeks off. So in those off weeks, I've kind of, uh, I, I, I do things like this. Nice people like you allow me to come onto their podcast and, and tell my story. And hopefully between our conversation, we're going to make a difference in somebody's life today. Well, and I mean, that's a wonderful thing, right? I mean, you, you mentioned it's not so joyful, but in that respect, you know, joy, you have to sort of separate from happiness. You know, this isn't always about life being happy, but being, being joyful through all the ups and downs in life. And some of those are quite hard as we're talking today about your story of, of dealing with pain. And you can tell from your voice already, you're doing a, a wonderful job um, at doing that and inspiring other people through that attitude, through that energy you project. So thank you for that, Terry. Sure. Um, so going back to your colorful life, I'm just wondering how these early life experiences, you know, especially like your sports life, um, did that have a, an impact? Did that help you develop mental skills 
that have helped you in this stage in your life, do you think? I, I do. I, I think I was fortunate in a lot of ways. You know, I started playing team sports when I was like nine years old and, and I played those sports, specifically basketball, all the way up till I graduated from college, till I was 21. And I think one of the things that team sports teaches us is the importance of being part of something bigger than yourself. Mm. You know, you know, if, if you don't get your job done, not only do you let yourself down, but you let your teammates down, your coaches down, your fans down, your parents down, etc. And if you think about it, the biggest team sport that we all play is this game of life. Right. And so, you know, for me, as I said, I'm on this clinical trial drug for these tumors in my lungs, it will more than likely not save my life. But the way I look at it is it might save someone else's life. The doctors may be able to glean information from all my blood work and scans and take that and use it to develop something that saves somebody else's life mm -hmm. five years from now, 10 years from now, when I won't even be here. And if that's the case, then that gives my life even more meaning, at least as far as I'm concerned, and again, I think that goes back to being part of something that's bigger than yourself. Yeah, no, that's amazing. And, and there's many things, you know, we could talk about today, many different aspects of this journey, but we're going to focus today on, on your philosophy, really, about how to mentally deal with and overcome physical pain and discomfort, or perhaps more broadly, to deal with trauma and to live an extraordinary life despite of that. So to start us off, I mean, you've talked a little bit about it, but maybe go a little bit more deeper in how the role pain has played in your life from your own sports injuries, cancer treatments, but also your loved ones you talked about earlier and their battles with cancer. Sure. So in addition to, you know, I, I talked about what I'm going through now. I mean, back in 2018, I had my left foot amputated. Last year, I had my left leg amputated. I sort of joke with my orthopedic surgeon that he's like piecemealing me to hell one body part at a time. You know, it's kind of like, here's a foot, here's a leg, you know, and it's like, so, I mean, pain in our lives is inevitable. I mean, we're all going to experience pain and it doesn't have to be cancer pain or a chronic or a terminal illness. It could be something as simple as you flunk a test at school or you break up with your boyfriend or your girlfriend or you don't get the promotion mm -hmm. at work that you think you deserve. Pain is inevitable. Suffering, on the other hand, suffering's optional. Suffering is what you do with that pain. Do you use it to make you a stronger, a tougher, a more determined individual? Or do you wallow in it and want people to feel sorry for you and feel sorry for yourself? And, I, you know, there's no S on my chest. I don't wear a cape. I, I'm a human being. I, I have bad days. Mm. You know, there are days that I cry. There are days that I get down. There are days that, you know, I feel sorry for myself. But I, I remember kind of two stories and they sort of dovetail with each other. And, and whenever I get in those places, I remember these two stories. The first one is about uh, a professor at Johns Hopkins University here in the United States uh, back in the 1950s who did a very simple experiment. He took rats and he put them in a tank of water that was over their head. And he wanted to see how long the rats could tread water before they, they sank and they drowned. And the average rat treaded water for about 15 minutes. And just as they were about ready to go under and drown, he grabbed them, pulled them out, dried them off, and let them rest for a while. And then he put them back in that exact same tank of water. And the second time around, those rats treaded water for 60 hours. Wow. 
Wow. Think about that. 15 minutes. That's all I can do. First time, you know, right. I can't do it anymore. I'm going to drown. Second time, 60 hours. And what that taught me was two things. One, the importance of hope in our lives. We've got to have something that we're, you know, it's going to get better. We're, you know, we're striving for something that's better than where, than where we are right now. And two, just how much more our physical bodies can handle than we ever thought that they could. And the, the second story kind of dovetails with that. I have a, a friend who's a former Navy SEAL, uh, you know, some of the toughest men in the world, and they have what they call their 40% rule. And basically what that says is that if you're, if you're at the end of your rope, you can't for them, you know, sprint another mile or, you know, swim another lap or do another pushup, you're only at 40% of your maximum and you still have another 60% left to give to yourself. So I always, whenever I get into that situation where I feel sorry for myself, and I do, I, I have those days, like I said, I'm a human being. I always think of those stories. It was like, no, Terry, you can do so much more than you ever thought you could do and, and get out of that situation and keep moving forward. Right, that's amazing. So there's the hope aspect and then this, this understanding or this belief and this knowledge that you have more, that you can cope with more. You're not done at this first time where you feel this sort of barrier hitting, you're hitting this barrier, right? And you believe, no, I can, I can get beyond that. Yeah, I mean, not only do you know, but I mean, it's been scientifically proven, you know? I mean, it's, so it's not just a, a thought, it's a physical reality. And, you know, to go through, there, there's an old Winston Churchill quote that I love from when he was the prime minister during World War II. He mm -hmm. said, you know, if you're going through hell, keep going. And, and I, I think I've had people, you know, come up to me and he was like, you know, I could never do what you did. And I look at him like, and I don't mean to be a smart aleck, but I, I, those people just bother me. It's like, right. you're right. You couldn't because you've already decided in your brain that you can't do this. Mm. You know, I mean, why would you even start something if you went into it with the attitude of oh, this isn't going to work or I'm going to fail or this isn't going to be successful? Why would you even do that? I mean, our brains can hold one thought at a time. Why would you make that a negative thought? Right. So attitude in a way, but science backing that up, right? That knowledge that the science has your back on this one. It's just not you with your crazy ideas and your Superman cape, right? This, this Exactly. <laughs> Great. So do you remember a specific turning point, you know, on somewhere where you realize through all this hardship and all this pain that you can deal with the pain? Or did it build over a longer time, just a gradual sort of awareness building slowly? I think it, it started for me when I was in high school. I, I had had three knee surgeries in high school. And I remember when I went back to play basketball, my brain started putting these negative thoughts in my, in my mind. It, you know, things like, hey, you know, these surgeries probably caused you to be a step slower on the basketball court and coaches aren't going to be interested in recruiting you to play for them in college. And I was like, well, wait a minute. No, I'm still playing at an elite level and coaches are still contacting me about potentially playing for them in college. So I had to change that narrative. I had to flip the switch and say, no, 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 no. And, you know, I've read several articles about we have 60 to 70,000 thoughts that go through our brain every single day. Hmm. So it's important to realize, you know, a lot of it just kind of filters in and filters out and we don't pay much attention to it. But when you get that negative thought, you've got to flip that switch. You've got to change that narrative into something 
that's positive. And it, you know, if you're a negative person, if you're always one of those people that, you know, it's never going to work, I'm never going to be successful. Mm. It's not going to happen overnight. If you want to make that change, it's not going to happen overnight, but it is going to happen every time you realize there's something negative that you flip the switch into something positive. And I think if you do that, you're going to get to a point in your life where you're going to experience, you know, good things, good things are going to start happening to you. It's sort of, you know, you see what you want to see. You know, if you're looking for something bad, you're probably going to see something bad versus if you're looking for something good, you're probably going to see something good. So, you know, I, I think it's kind of one of those situations where, yes, I learned that lesson early, but I think the rest of it has kind of been a, a culmination of different experiences and things that I've had over my life that just led me to the point where instead of running from pain, I now use pain mm. to help me be stronger, to help me be more determined. And believe me, if I can do it, I am the biggest wimp in the world. So if I can do it, <laughs> anybody can do it. Right, right, right. But it's not necessarily going to happen overnight, as you say, that, that, exactly. that changing the narrative each time, catching it, making sure your own thoughts, but also the words of others that you're, you're listening to, just making sure that, no, hey, that's not how I want to see the world. That's not how I want to see myself. Exactly. Yeah, changing that. No, that's so powerful. And studies have shown, you know, that you talk about wimps. So studies have shown that fear and pain are very much intertwined in our brain on a neurobiological level. And so how did the uncertainty of having a rare diagnosis and periods of not really knowing that there's a cure and going through rough treatments um, to halt the progress of the cancer, how did that impact your experience with physical and emotional pain? I think when I first found out, I, I had my cancer started in my foot. I had a callus break open and I went to see a podiatrist friend of mine and he took an x-ray and he, you know, there's a I think you have a little cyst in there and I can cut it out. And he did. And, and you know, he, he showed it to me and it, neither one, no dark spots, no blood. Neither one of us had any concern, but he sent it off to have it uh, examined. And then two weeks later, I get the call from him. And as I said, he'd been a friend of mine. And the more difficulty he was having me, he was having telling me about what was going on, the more frightened I was becoming until he just kind of laid it out. I said, Tara, I've been a doctor for 25 years. I have never seen this form of cancer. You have a rare form of melanoma that appears on the bottom of the feet or the palms of the hands. And I recommend you go to MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston and be treated. And so, you know, I went through all the emotions of that, you know, we kind of associate with grief, you know, I was down, I was depressed, I was mad, I would kind of bargain with God, I went through all those emotions. Mm. And then I just kind of looked at it like, well, you know what, these are the cards that I've been dealt, and I'm going to have to play them to the best of my ability. I, I mean, I certainly have seen people that have turned their entire medical situation over to a doctor. And it's like, you know, you went to medical school, you've got an MD, whatever you tell me, I'm going to do. I'm not that kind of person. I want my life to be shaped by the decisions that I made, mm. not the ones that somebody else made or the ones that I didn't make. So I asked my doctor a lot of questions and I'm sure there are times where he's ready to hit me over the head with a two by four. And it's like, you know, just shut up and do what I tell you to do kind of thing. But I want to know things. I want to be involved because for me, that decreases the fear. I think having knowledge, knowledge of whatever you're facing or whatever the treatment is helps you not to be as afraid. I mean, we fear things we don't understand or that we, yeah. you know, we're, we're concerned about, I don't know what that means, 
Well, you know what? Educate yourself so that you do know what it means. And in that way, you're a whole lot less afraid. Right. So knowledge of you know, building your awareness, your understanding is one key to overcoming fear in your life. Definitely. Do you have any other sort of wisdom on how people could face their fears, um, whatever fears those may be? Yeah, I, I think, you know, when I was a policeman, people used to ask me, are, are you ever afraid when you do that job? And I, I used to tell them, I'm like, any cop that tells you they're not afraid is either lying to you or they're an idiot. Because, you know, fear is there, there's a great book out by a, a guy by the name of Gavin DeBecker, and it's called The Gift of Fear. And, it, and it, it really is, you know, fear is there to keep us alive. Fear is there, you know, to prevent us from doing, you know, dumb, stupid, goofy stuff that, that could, you know, get us in trouble physically or, or mentally or emotionally. And so, you know, for me, it's like I, I, fear is good. I mean, I, I have no problem living with fear. Mm. But when I get afraid, it's usually because I don't know what's coming. And, and I get that. I mean, there are certain things, I don't care how much you educate yourself, you're never going to get to a point where you understand everything. So I think you just have to take that fear. And instead of running from it, and I think a lot of people do, we see people that, you know, medicate themselves, they turn to alcohol, they turn to drugs, they turn to, you know, bad behavior for them. Instead of running from it, do just the opposite. Flip it inside, burn it as fuel, use it as energy to make you a stronger individual. It's, it's certainly a unique way of looking at it because our brains are hardwired to avoid that pain yep. and discomfort right. and to seek pleasure. So we have a tendency to want to get away from it. But I guess what I'm suggesting is don't run from it. Use it. Use it to make you a better person. Yeah, I mean, that's powerful. It's, it's not easy, as you say, but with practice, right? And practice on maybe small fears to start with. And, and yeah, I can do that. And then build your way up, right? As you come your bigger and bigger demons in that respect and embrace exactly. them. Exactly. You know, and I always suggest to people, you should do one thing every day that makes you nervous, that is outside your comfort zones, that potentially may be embarrassing to you. Because if you do that and you overcome, like you say, those small things, then the next day, you do something a little bit bigger and you succeed at that. So when you you face those things that we all face in life that seem to be insurmountable, you're like, no, I've tackled this, 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 and this. So now I know I can handle this. So I, I would definitely say, get out there and do something that scares you or makes you uncomfortable every day. It's gonna do nothing but help you. Right, because physiologically it's the same thing. It's just a difference of scale. Exactly. So that's what it is. Cool, so you speak, of something called the three F's. And I have to be a bit careful here just in case any children are listening because I don't know what the three F's are. Um, but talk about being part of something bigger than yourself. Can you sort of talk around that a bit? Sure, so the, you can have children in the room for the three okay. F's. The, the three F's are, are faith, family, and friends. And I, I have a tremendous faith in God. I've, I've actually had people ask me, it's like, you know, do you blame God because you got cancer. Mm. Said, no, I don't think God got up on a Tuesday morning, checked his to-do list and said, you know, Terry Tucker, cancer today. No, I don't think God did that at, at all. But I do feel that my faith has gotten me through the, this situation. And then my family, it's, it's just me and my wife and my daughter. And when I had my leg amputated, uh, I, you know, again, I found out I had these tumors in my lungs and my oncologist was like, well, I want to, I want to start you on chemotherapy. And it, 
you know, I've been doing this for eight years fighting this disease. And I, I kind of looked at him I was like, is it going to save my life? He's like, no, but it'll buy you some time. And I'm like, I, I'm not sure I want to do that. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I'm not sure it's something I, I'm interested in doing, but I'll go home and talk to my family. And so, so I go home and, you know, I'm telling my wife and daughter about it. And, and, and my daughter's immediately, all right, we got to have a family meeting. I'm like, family meeting? There's three of us. You know, I mean, what, what are we, is this like a board or something like that? So we end up sitting around the kitchen table and discussing how we feel individually about this. And then my daughter's like, all right, let's take a vote. How many people want dad to have chemotherapy? You know, and so she and my wife raised their hand. I'm like, wait a minute, am I getting outvoted on something that, you know, I, I decide I don't want to do? But I remembered back when I was in the police academy mm. and our defensive tactics instructor used to have us bring a photograph of the people that we loved the most to class. And as we were learning techniques to defend ourselves, we were to look at that photograph because he reasoned you will fight harder for the people you love right. than you will fight for yourself. Mm. So I did chemotherapy because my wife and daughter wanted me to be to do chemotherapy and I, and I love them more than I loved myself. So I was glad I did it now because it, it got me to a point where I was able to start this trial drug, which I've been on for about a year and a half. So that's the second F of, of the, you know, so faith, family, and then friends. And I'll tell you, you develop cancer or you develop a, a, a terminal or a chronic illness, you really find out who your friends are during that situation. I mean, there, I, I have people in my neighborhood now that can't talk to me about my cancer. They're, they're just like, no, I can't, I can't deal with that. There's just something that, yeah. that, you know, in me that I just, I don't want to face that yet. But then there are also, you know, and, and I know I've done this and, and Andrew, you've probably done this too, where somebody's going into the hospital, even if it's something joyous, like to have a baby or something like that. And what do we always say? Hey, if you need anything, just let me know. Yeah. Well, guess what? I don't have time to figure out how you can help me. You know, I mean, the same things that you need to have done at your house, you know, cut the grass, take the dog for a walk, pick the kids up from yeah. school, go to the grocery store. Are those the same things I need to have done, but now I'm going to have this surgery. So I always, it always bothers me when people say that, because it's kind of like sitting on the sidelines yeah. and pretending you're playing in the game. You're yeah. really not. You know, if you want to get in the game, get in the game. I remember I had a, a 93, 95-year-old friend at the time who was in World War II, and I'd had my first surgery, and I, I just come home. I did not have to stay in the hospital after it. And I get a call on my cell phone, and his name's Bud. He's like, Terry, can I come over for like 10 minutes? I'm like, yeah, sure, bud, come on over. I mean, within 15 minutes, here's my 95-year-old friend standing in our living room with a fully cooked chicken and a pan of cream cheese Danish that he had bought at the store. He's like, here, you have dinner for tonight, you have breakfast for the morning. He didn't sit on the sidelines and try to pretend he was playing in the game. He actually got involved. So from a friend's point of view, don't tell your friends, hey, you need me, call me. Right. Get involved in their lives. If you love them and care about them, get involved and do something to help them out. Jump in. I love that concept of, of not sitting on the sidelines, right? Um, but actually jumping in, um, doing something active. And it might be the wrong thing, right? You might turn around sure. and you don't like lemon pie, right? And that's okay. Um, that's right. You know, that's, it's the thought that counts. It's, exactly. it's being involved. And doing yeah. it, right? Getting involved, doing it. And, you know, if a 93-year-old man can do it, why can't the rest of us? You know, exactly. that's for sure. We've got no excuses. Um, you've summed up your philosophy of how to overcome pain and, and lead this extraordinary life you talk about in general. is what you call the four truths. Um, could you share with us and our listeners what these four truths are and how you came up with them? 
Sure. So I mean, these are things that I, I kind of describe them as sort of the bedrock of my soul. There are just things that that I know and, and I can build on those. I can build something positive off of them. And I have them on a post-it note that I, that I have on my desk. And they're just one sentence each, and I'll, and I'll give them to you. And we've talked about a couple of them. The first one is you need to control your mind or your mind will control you. And I think that goes back to the story that I already talked about with, with my knee surgery of you know replacing that negative thought with something positive. The second one we've also kind of talked about is embrace the pain and the difficulty that we all are going to experience in life and use that pain and difficulty to make you a stronger and more determined individual. Don't run from pain, use it, flip it inside, burn it as energy to make you a better person. The third one, um, I guess for lack of a better word, is a legacy truth. And it's, I think it's important for all of us to sort of think about the end game, the end of our lives. What are people gonna say about us you know, at our funeral? In, in many cultures, you know, ancestry is very important. What would your ancestors say about the life you've, let, you've lived? So the third one is this, what you leave behind is what you weave in the hearts of other people. Mm-hmm. And then the fourth one is pretty self-explanatory. As long as you don't quit, you can never be defeated. And my pain is going to end someday. You know, it may end through surgery. It may end through medication. Quite frankly, it may end when I die. But if I quit, if I give up or I give in to pain, pain will always be a part of my life. Yeah, those are beautiful. As you say, we covered the first two. I think on the third one, the legacy one, I love I love what you're saying about weaving into the, the hearts of others and into their lives, right? Their lives will be shaped so much by your life as, as a parent, as a, um, as a guide for their lives, leading the path. And when people ask me, you know, why am I doing this? Why am I focused on, on joy? And it is very much about the legacy. I've had numerous times this vision, this dream of my, my daughter, you know, with me on my deathbed as I'm sort of passing away and she's holding my hand and saying that, Father, it's okay, you tried. Right. And that's enough. Yeah. Right. I didn't yeah. give up. I suppose that combines both of them, right? I had a legacy and I didn't give up, right? I kept it, it does. believing in the purpose of joy. It, it does. I, I had a nurse recently ask me, you know, what was it like to have your foot amputated and, and your, your leg amputated? And I told her it's, it certainly was not easy. It hasn't been easy. I'm still trying to learn how to walk again with a prosthetic. You know, when you're a little kid, you fall over, you laugh, you have a good time. That's how you learn to walk. When, when you're six foot eight, falling is not an option. It's not something that, you know, it's a whole lot further down than it is when you're a little kid. Well, what I told her is, you know, cancer can take all my physical faculties, but cancer can't touch my heart, it can't touch my mind, and it can't touch my soul. And that's who we are. This is just a, a house or a vessel or whatever you want to call it to hold who we are. So if you don't get too caught up in, well, I don't have a leg now or I don't have a foot, that's not who you are. That's not who Andrew is. That's not who Terry is. Yeah. Our heart, our mind, our soul, that's who we are. That's what we should work on, on developing. And, and once we do that, life is great. Well, and that's fantastic because that sort of leads me into the next point, which is, is really about that and this letting go, I suppose, of this, of this body, this encasement that we have. And, you know, obviously in your career of both law enforcement, um, your journey as a cancer warrior, and, and, you know, just 
being a human being with your loved ones, you know, you've witnessed probably more death and journeys towards death than, than many people. But let's flip it on its head and ask, well, what has this experience taught you about life? Yeah, it, you know, it, it's, it's kind of interesting for me when I found out I had these tumors in my lungs and I was going to have my leg amputated. My wife and I went to the mortuary, to the cemetery, to the, to the church, and I planned my funeral. And, you know, I, I got some brushback from some people. They were kind of like, you know, don't you think that's kind of defeatist? And mm. I was like, well, last time I checked, we're all going to die. I don't think anybody's working on a cure for life right now. So, you know, I, I, I think that the important thing is everybody dies, mm. but not everybody really lives. And I think that's the important part of this. And I remember back years ago, I heard a a Native American Blackfoot proverb that, that I just love. And I, I've really kind of tried to internalize it. And it goes like this. When you were born, you cried and the world rejoiced. Live your life in such a way so that when you die, the world cries and you rejoice. Mm. That's what I want. And I think the important words are there, live your life. Live your life in such a way so that when you're gone, people are upset. They're depressed. They're, you know, Terry's gone, man. He's a great guy. I like, you know. <laughs> But hey, but what's Terry doing? Terry's having a blast because my faith tells me there's something after this. I, I you know, I've lived in the United States on, on both coasts and the Gulf Coast. I live now in the foothills of the Rocky Mountains. I'm telling you, in my mind, you can't tell me there isn't a God based on the beauty that I've seen and the things that I've been involved in. And, you know, do I wish I didn't have cancer? In a way, yes. But on the other hand, I think cancer has made me a better individual, a better person. And I know when I when I first got cancer, I made a, a conscious decision that I wasn't gonna, I don't care how bad of a day I was having. I'm not taking this out on a doctor or a nurse or a therapist or a technician or anybody who's trying to help me. It's not their fault that I got cancer. I've got cancer, that's okay. And I need to take responsibility for my own success and happiness. And, and that's, that's a big problem. I think, you know, people don't wanna, they don't want to take responsibility. They're looking to blame. Whenever something doesn't go right, we got to blame. We got to find somebody or something to blame. Well, you know, we want to blame our parents or, you know, our boss or our status in life. Guess what? The world owes you absolutely nothing. Mm. If you want something in life, you got to figure out how to get it and then go after it. Because like I said, the world doesn't owe you a doggone thing. Right. But this, I mean, this joy for life. I mean, it's, you know, it's when I'm sitting here and obviously... Hearing you, I have the pleasure also to, to see you and your passion and your, your joy for life, which is amazing. And if everybody had half of what you got, <laughs> the world would be a better place. So, you know, hopefully, you know, our listeners feel inspired to, to hey, yeah, let's just celebrate life, right, today. Let's live it, right? And let people cry when I'm gone because I'm going to be rejoicers, whatever happens. Right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I, I mean, life is too short. I, I, I mean, it's... Find, find the reason you were put on the face of this earth. Get out there and live that reason. Because I think if you do, if you live your life, death is not nearly as scary as all those people who kind of muddle through. And then mm. at the end of their lives, like, oh, wait a minute, I never did anything. I want another month or I want another year. Well, right. sorry, you don't get where that Where did anymore. that go? Yeah, where yeah exactly. Go? And to do it with a smile on your face. I think Exactly. That, yeah, exactly. And you have this book called Sustainable Excellence. So could you tell us a bit about how the book came about? What inspired you to write it? Sure. So the book is really born out of two conversations I had. One was when I was a basketball coach uh, in Texas, 
Uh, I coached girls basketball and I had a former player who moved to Colorado where my wife and I live and we'd had dinner with her, her and her fiance. And I remember saying to her, you know, I'm really excited that you're living close and I can watch you find and live your purpose. And mm. she got real, real quiet for a while. And she kind of looked at me and she was like, well, coach, what do you think my purpose is? I said, I have no idea what your purpose is, but that's what your life should be about. Finding the reason that God puts you on the face of this earth, take those skills, take, take, those qualities and live that life. So that was one conversation. Another one was with a young man in college who reached out to me and said, you know, what do you think are the things I need to learn to not just be successful in my job or in business, but to be successful in life overall? And, and I didn't want to give him that, you know, get up early, work hard, help others. Not that those aren't important. They are extremely important. But I wanted to see if I could go a little bit deeper. So I, I thought about it for a while. I took some time. I wrote some notes. And eventually I had these 10 thoughts, these 10 ideas, these 10 principles, and I sent them to him. And then I kind of stepped back and I was like, well, you know, I've got a life story that fits underneath this principle, or I know somebody yeah. whose life emulates that principle. So literally during the three month period between the time I had my leg amputated and the time I started chemotherapy for the tumors in my lungs, while I was healing, you know, I probably should have been sitting around watching Netflix, but I sat at the computer every day and I built stories underneath each of these principles. And that's how sustainable excellence came to be. Wow, that is, that is so empowering and to hear that. Um, not only obviously the book came out, but the use of that time in between those events. Um, thank you for that gift for, for the world. And, and 10 principles, we don't have time obviously to go through all 10 today, but if you had to pick one, um, which one would you pick? So that's a great question. And as an author, I always love it when people read a book because the, the principles are not in any order. You know, one is not any more important than number seven. But it, people, there's always one that resonates with the reader. You know, it's like, oh, I like number four. Right. And for me, it's the one, and, and this is each principle is a chapter. And, and, I, and I think this resonates for me, for me because I've done it. And, and the principle is this. Most people think with their fears and their insecurities instead of using their minds. And I know I've done that. I, I know it's like, oh, I'd like to do that, but mm, that's, that's a little scary. Or, you know, what if I fail? What are people going to say? And, you know, I always tell, especially young people, if there's something in your heart, something in your soul that you believe you're supposed to do, but it scares you, go ahead and do it. Because at the end of your life, the things that you're going to regret are not going to be the things you did. They're going to be the things you didn't do. And by then it's going to be too late to go back and do them. So, you know, get outside that comfort zone. Again, you know, yeah, I don't know what that's that scares me a little bit. Do that. If mm. it scares you, do that. You know, if it's uncomfortable, you could be embarrassed. Do that. That's the, the one day, you know, every day do something that's uncomfortable. Go ahead and do that. Who cares what people say? Who cares what people think? They're not you. They're the people that are watching from the sidelines and pretending they're playing in the game. Yeah. They're, they're not. You are. You're actually in the game doing it. And, and I love it. I mean, it reminds me of one of the great motivational graduation speeches by Denzel Washington. You know, we're telling you to the graduates to hate, to, to fail, to fall forwards. If you're going to fall, fall forwards. But this brings me to your three principles, your three Fs, right? You know, if you have faith, if you have family, if you have friends, man, is it easier to fall forwards? You know, you've got those three things to, to pick you up, brush you off a little bit, tell you, hey, go again, kid. You know, it's okay. It, you got it is. This, and, right? and, you know, think about people you and I both know that 
that surround themselves. I always say that, you know, Andrew, if I didn't know you, but I knew the five people you hung around with the most, mm. I could probably tell you a lot about you. And, you know, if people, if you've got people in your life that, you know, are not uplifting you, that are not, you know, looking out for your best interest, that are not willing to tell you the truth, even when that truth is difficult for you to mm. hear, then get those people out of your life. Get people around you that are willing to do that. But also remember, if somebody's willing to tell you the truth, you can't all of a sudden say, well, I don't like what you're saying, so you're not my friend anymore. No, they really are your friend. They're probably the best friend you have because they're willing to be honest with you and say, hey, Terry, you know what? You're kind of messing up by, by doing this. I wouldn't do that anymore. Those are the people you want in your life. Surround yourself with those people, and I promise you, you'll have a great life. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And we talk about having doing a friend's audit every now and again you know just to check in and to, to be sure the people you're surrounded with today are the ones that are uplifting and helping you today because that might be different from 10 years ago or wherever you were on your journey so it's something just a pulse sort of well worth checking in on absolutely again and you also talked about whys and finding your why and obviously the great quote by mark twain um, the two most important days in your life for the day you were born and the day you find out why um, so there are many people out there who maybe never find it, but also some now who, especially during the pandemic, I think, who are questioning that and asking themselves, well, what is my why? And do you have any advice for them if they're thinking about it today that, hey, how do I find my why? I think the easiest way to find your why is to be open to things, you know, ha have an open heart. And, and I, I, if you look at my resume, you know, you talked about, you know, my, my first job was at Wendy's, then I became a hospital administrator, and then I pivoted and became a police officer. And there was a reason for that. My, my grandfather was a Chicago police officer back in the, from the 20s to the 50s, and he was actually shot in the line of duty with his own gun. It wasn't a serious injury, but my dad always remembered the knock on the door of, you know, Mrs. Tucker, please grab your son. Your husband's been shot and come with us. So when I expressed interest in going into law enforcement, my dad was, oh, no, 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 you're going to go to college. You're going to major in business. You're going to get out. You're going to get a great job. You're going to get married, have 2.4 kids and live in the suburbs and live happily, right? But that was, the, that was the life my dad wanted me to live. And so when I graduated from college, my dad, as I said, was sick and was dying of cancer. So I had two choices. I could say, you know, the heck with you, dad. I'm going to go blaze my own trail mm -hmm. or no, dad, I'll do what you want me to do out of deference for you and how much I love you and care about you. And I'll go into business until, you know, I sort of joke, I did what every good son did. I waited till my dad passed away and then I followed my dreams. Right. So I know there are people out there that, that are getting pressure from, you know, a parent or an uncle or somebody that's like, you know, hey, you're going to be an architect or, hey, you're going to law school or, hey, you're going to take over the family business when that's not really your passion. Mm. I, I, when the discussion, the conversation I had with my former player that was one of the ones for the impetus for the book, that conversation went on and we talked about Colonel Sanders. I don't, I don't know if you know who Colonel Sanders is, he started Kentucky Fried Chicken franchise. Well, Colonel Sanders didn't start that franchise until he had retired, until he was in his 60s. Now, I don't know if that was his purpose or his why, I'm going to assume that it was, but can you imagine if like he was in his thirties and was like, nope, I'm good right where that, where I am. I'm not going to do anything that would have never happened. So that was a concern that my, my player had, you know, what if I don't have enough time? I said, you know what? I don't believe a God who would put you on this earth. We don't all have the same gifts and talents 
but we all have this the ability to become the best person we're capable of becoming so i don't believe that god who would give you these talents and want you to do something would you know have you get here for two years and then say no i'm taking you you know you're dead it's you're moving on no if you keep searching for your purpose with an open heart i believe you'll find it and my players are well how will i know like if you can't wait to get up out of bed every morning and go do what you think your purpose is and i guess let me back up for a second a lot of times we talk about our why or our purpose being our job that doesn't have to be the case. I mean, your job could be over here and that's what you do to pay the bills, but your purpose is to write or to paint or to yeah. volunteer or whatever it is that you think in your heart you're supposed to do. So don't feel that your purpose has to be your job. For many people it is. Yeah. And I also think I'll add this, your purpose is gonna change over life. For me, it was to be in law enforcement, but for now, at this point in my life, I'm not in law enforcement anymore. I think it's to put as much goodness, as much positivity, as much motivation, as much love back into the world as I can. So don't worry about, you know, this is my purpose today. 20 years from now, your, your purpose may be entirely different and that's okay. And that is okay. And that's part of that openness that you talk about, right? If you get uh, moving through life with this open heart, checking in with yourself, being aware um, and realizing that change is okay. And then embracing that change, saying, hey, new opportunity to walk down a new purpose to, in a way, lead in another life. Um, what a great exactly. gift that is, right? Have a right. new purpose, right? Start again, do it. Um, you can live multiple lives within one life um, when you're refining your purpose through this open heart, through this curiosity, um, through this way of walking forward. Finally, I suppose I sort of wrap up, I suppose, talking a little about we haven't really talked about the pandemic and I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. But, but you know, maybe just a sort of a couple of words from you on your wisdom through what you've learned through your own journey to help people who are struggling um, through this pandemic time and feeling the weight of it on their shoulders. Um, do you have any sort of good advice for them? I have advice. I don't know if it's good or not. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> I, buyer beholders. Yes, I mean, they're buyer beware, as they say. Right. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I guess I, you know, I've always, I guess I'll leave you with a story. And, and, and I think this, this in a lot of ways illustrates, you know, yeah, again, this bad stuff's going to happen. And, and you know what? There's nothing you can do about it. But you can get out there and you can, you can learn from it. You can say, all right. Yeah, I've got to work from home. How am I going to make that work? Or I just started a business. Now I've got to make that business be a remote business because, you know, the brick and mortar shop isn't going to work and stuff like that. That that goes back to do something difficult every day. Figure that out. If you were smart enough to start a business, you were smart enough to, to find out, you know, how you can make that business, augment that business to be successful. When I was a, a young kid, I was always a big fan of cowboys and Indians movies mm -hmm. and TV shows. 1993, the movie Tombstone came out and it starred Val Kilmer as a guy by the name of John Doc Holliday and Kurt Russell as a man by the name of Wyatt Earp. Now, Doc Holliday and Wyatt Earp were two living, breathing human beings who actually walked on the face of the earth. Mm. They're not made up characters just for the movie. And Doc was called Doc because he was a dentist by trade, but pretty much he was a gunslinger and a card <laughs> shark. And, and Wyatt had been a lawman his entire life. And these two men from entirely opposite backgrounds, 
form this very close friendship. And at the end of the movie, Doc is dying at a sanitarium in Glenwood Springs, Colorado, which is about three hours from where I live. And the real Doc Holliday died in that sanitarium. He's buried in the Glenwood Springs Cemetery. And Wyatt at this point in his life is destitute. He has no money, he has no job, he has no prospects for a job. So every day he comes to play cards with Doc and the two men pass the time that way. And in this scene, they're talking about what they want out of life. And Doc says, you know, I was in love with my cousin when I was younger, but she joined a convent over the affair, but she's all that I ever wanted. And he looks at Wyatt and he says, what about you, Wyatt? What do you want? And Wyatt kind of looks at him nonchalantly. He's like, I just want to lead a normal life. And Doc looks at him and says, there's no normal, there's just life and get on with living yours. Andrew, I think you and I know people that are just kind of sitting back and be like, well, when this happens, I'll have a normal life. When that happens, I'll have a successful life. When this happens, I'll have an influential life. What I'm saying is don't wait. Don't wait for life to come to you. Get out there, find the reason you were put on the face of this earth, whether it's during a pandemic or not during a pandemic, find that reason and live it. Because I promise you this, at the end of your life, two things are gonna happen. One, you're gonna be a whole lot happier and two, you're going to have a whole lot more peace in your heart. Well, that, that is wonderful. And that word, yeah, there is nothing normal. I love that, you know, because the thing that grinds on me is when people say, oh, I, I want things to return to normal. I wish things in the pandemic wasn't here and things go back to normal. And I think that story really drives home the fact that, hey, there was no normal. There is no normal. There will be no normal. It's just your life. Get on with it. Exactly. Right. So, I mean, you're purely inspirational terry you're, you're a wonder to talk with but let me ask you who inspires you um if you had to name two or three people that that really inspire you in your life who would those be that people could follow you know that other people could say hey i want to check them out yeah i i, I think um you know i i read a lot I, I don't spend a lot of time watching television and things like that and i, and I read a lot and and if you saw my bedroom, I'm, I'm in the middle of about six different books right now. I, I mean, I, I, you know, it's like, okay, I feel like this one today and stuff like that. And there's, there's a book that I read recently called Legacy, and it's written by, by the name, a man by the name of James Kerr. And it's about the New Zealand national rugby team, who mm. by all intents and purposes is probably the most success, successful sports franchise, you know, of any sport, of any team, of, of all times. And they're called the All Blacks because their their uniforms are all black. Yeah. And I, I I read his book and I couldn't put it down. I, I was just going through and take. I took four pages of notes. And one of the things I found extremely interesting about this group is that you know here's this great team, and you would think that when they're looking to bring on a new player, they're going to bring on somebody who's technically competent. You're very good at. And I don't know anything about rugby, so I apologize. I'm I'm not going to even try to. Uh, assume that I do. And so they're going to bring in this great player, but that's not what they do. They hire for two things. One is your character. What kind of a person are you? Mm. And two, humility. You don't have to have all the answers, but us together will figure out all the answers. Mm. So James Kerr is somebody that I would definitely recommend um, you know, I, there was a basketball coach when I was growing up by the name of John Wooden, who coached at UCLA, mm. uh, who, who won an ungodly amount of championships. And one of the things that I thought was interesting about Coach Wooden is he's as much known for his basketball coaching as he is for his what he calls his pyramid of success. 
and and it's it's basically a pyramid of different blocks that he thinks you need to know to be successful in life and one of the things i, I heard him give an interview one day this man was asking him you know well so what do you think is the most important thing that players need to learn and you know and i'm not kind of on the edge of my seat like okay give me a good x's and o's player give me something that you know from the sport that i'm going to be able to take away from this and use as i get to be a better basketball player and he kind of sat back and he was like he said the most important thing in anything we do is love you've got to have love you got to have love for other people you got to have love for yourself you got to have love for what you're doing in life and I was like, no, 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 give me something good. He gave me the best thing that ever, that I think ever. I mean, as a matter of fact, it's the last chapter in my book, nice. The Importance of Love in Our Lives. So yeah. I guess in, I would say James Kerr and I would say John Wooden. Sorry for the long answer. No, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. So, and we'll add the Beatles to that because they also knew that all you need is love, right? Absolutely. So, I love the perfect. Beatles. Perfect. They love it. Well, unfortunately, Terry, that's all we've got time for today. Um, I'd like to thank you, obviously, for coming on the show and sharing your story um, and also your wisdom. So thank you so, so much, Terry, for that. Thank you for having me on, Andrew. I appreciate it. And, and hopefully our conversation is going to make a difference in somebody's life. And if it does, today's been a good day. Oh, certainly. Certainly it is. Thank you, Terry. And I hope you, our listeners, feel inspired and empowered by my chat with Terry today on the joy superpower of dealing with pain. If you want to dive deeper, please check out Terry's website, Motivational Check, which he launched to help others find and lead their uncommon and extraordinary lives. So that's www.motivationalcheck.com. And why not hop on social media and using the hashtag Joy Superpowers, share your own experiences with dealing with pain. We'd love to hear your stories. And if you don't already do so, please follow the art and science of joy on Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn. Thank you for listening. And I hope you tune in next week for the next episode of the Art and Science of Joy podcast. In the meantime, be well and be joyful. Thank you.